an important note before we begin. This episode uses strong language and discusses sexual violence. Please use discretion. From the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town, this is the ICA podcast, where we interview South African artists and curators who perform or curate live interdisciplinary works. I'm Catherine Bull, and you're listening to episode three, featuring Asanda Tuma Sopotela. So what I would usually do in a practical way is that I would have a rehearsal space where I walk into rehearsal, I would take off my clothes, and then I will do a circular movement around the space. Now this movement, it's like a meditation to remember all the things that I've heard, that I've seen. And also, if I had brought in any objects, I'll be introducing these objects into the space. So for me, it's like a meditation or it's a ritual that I do. Um, and it's a time for me now to explore what is trying to be said, communicated through the objects. So I would play with these objects. I would have a camera recording me as I am performing this sort of ritual. I would then, at the end of the day, would sit down and sort of de-roll, if you say, as an actor would say, stepping out of the ritual itself, put back my clothes, uh, switch off the camera, and I would go home and I would do the same thing again the next day. Towards the performance, now that I have all the objects together, I would say, now this is my shrine like a place of prayer. In today's episode, Uma Sopatela opens up these places of prayer, inviting us into a process of visualizing, developing, and then embodying her work. We're accessing memory. We're accessing memory that is sitting on the body. So the thing about understanding is that when you're thinking about something, when you're trying to understand it, the mind associates it with something. But when something is sitting in the body, it's the feeling. It resonates with some kind of feeling that you have. The memory, how the memory sits. And it's like the, 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 the show almost itches. It rubs that part of the memory. And all of a sudden you remember that sensation. But it doesn't start from the mind. It's the body. It's almost like you're diving deeper and deeper into yourself rather than trying to make sense of the things that you are feeling or you are seeing. Her work is not easy to give words to, neither in the moment of its happening nor in our attempts to analyse it afterwards. And this is the fascinating tension at the heart of her practice, a pool we must continually negotiate between what we register intellectually, rationally, and what we experience viscerally and emotionally. Here is academic and practitioner Dirketso Mohoto Wataluki, who has studied and closely followed and admired Sopotela's work for many years. I was so, um, I just was so disconcerted. I, I, just, I just felt like she had invaded me in some ways. 
that I could not describe. <laughs> um, it, it felt like she'd exposed something of me on that stage that I, I didn't even know I had. And I was also just worried. I was like, what is, what, what was that? What, I don't know what that was. We'll be hearing more from Mohoto Wataluki later in this episode. And also, as always, from ICA director Jay Pather. It was quite phenomenal. I mean, the whole spectre of this, the whole spectre of, uh, of time, of vengeance, of revenge, of uh, vulnerabilities, of, you know, there were just so many layers and layers and layers of this. But we begin in a performance venue on the University of Cape Town's arts campus called the Arena Theatre. The work that I do deals mostly with the relationships that we have as humans and trying to understand how come we treat each other the way that we do. In February 2018, an audience of about 60 people filtered into the Arena Theatre They'd come to watch the very first iteration of Sopotela's work, Untitled. So the audience came in into a slightly dim uh, lit space. I had only two fluorescent bars that were hanging over me. And on the floor I had a frame that is about two by one meters, almost like a grave. So there's two bars, um, they were lighting directly above this black frame and I was sitting on sort of like a bar stool on the side of the frame. Sopotela and I revisited the arena theatre on a quiet afternoon on campus to discuss Untitled which is a stark exploration of sexual violence. Our conversation took place just two weeks after massive protests erupted in Cape Town and throughout the country in response to the brutal killing of first-year UCT student, Uyenene Mkhoetiana. With a deep sense of feeling, I know what you are all going through. Mkhotiana was raped and killed in a post office in the suburb of Clermont, and the remains of her burnt body were later found in a shallow grave. Police recorded 41,500 rapes in South Africa between 2018 and 2019, although the true number of cases is believed to be much higher. The refrain repeatedly cried out in the marches and protests that followed Uyenene Mkhoetiana's death was enough is enough. We want to live freely. We want to walk freely. Here is Sopatela again in the arena theatre. I had uh, shades on, sunglasses, almost, it's like bling bling is the word I would use. They were bling bling, expensive looking but cheap. Also, I had a top on. It was cream white, and it was, it was almost as if someone just woke up from something. 
Um, I had a bra on, my strapless bra, and I had underwear. It was pink. In the beginning of the show, I take off my clothes. Something happens to another body when they see a naked body. It's, it's like it sends impulses to your body. So you're very aware of yourself. For me, it's about opening that canvas that is, that is the audience's canvas, their body, so that physically I can engage with them and sense them and sense their emotions through their body. How they breathe is also something very important. When they laugh, when some don't laugh, when some move, when it's uncomfortable. The main image that people always go back to is the is the image of the the underwear that has been burnt off the body so that it's lying on the floor like that. Oh, and one is a lighter. Anyone who grows up in the township, you would usually find these fields of nothingness, which are usually used as dumping grounds um, between spaces, so between schools, between a school and a mall, or between houses and a school, there'll be these patches of, of, of ground that is just open. You would then find these items of clothing, like this socks or underwears, and you will always wonder how it got there. But then that's where the thought will then stop because you're usually in transition, going somewhere. And this is, this is why I say that the work uses images to trigger memory. So that image of the underwear lying on the floor after I've burnt the sides of it, uh, the people will then remember these pieces of items that they also have seen. Who do these items belong to? When I embody the feeling of being a throwaway, it's sort of the feeling for me that I get when I think of a body that has been raped and disposed somewhere. That body used to belong to some soul, someone. It's usually like that, isn't it? At the end, someone lying, someone. It's usually found like this, right? Thrown away, carelessly, somewhere. The issue of Untitled was to imagine, to, to imagine the perpetrator, the rapist. When they look at their victim, what is it that draws them with the intention to harm? Uh, and what do they see? Um, um, I failed in creating the character itself of the perpetrator. Uh, what ended up happening is that I try to imagine the victim, the so-called victim in this case. I say so-called because it sort of sticks with you. That's why I don't like the word victim, which is something that I deal with in the, in the piece, is that we name the victims, but we seldom ask who threw away this body. Maybe it could say 
this person was a rapist or something. Or the troops do. <laughs> so, how many graves are those? Think about this one. The hedgehogist. This one. The hedgehogist. The issue of numbers was very important in the piece. I use a lot of repetition. That's where we are as a country when it comes to rape. It has become like a dance that we repeat over and over and we sort of respond to it over and over. I had never done the performance before that time, which is the nature of the kind of work that I do. I say that I create shrines, and the immediacy of me having the impulse to do the work and the research process is me sort of like creating a whirlwind inside myself where I collect these memories and in collecting these memories inside me, in the research, in the information, in the reading, in the vocabulary inside me, and the characters inside me, and the TV news, and, and what people say in the taxi, that information is, is it's sort of, it, when I get the impulse to make work, it's sort of like my body becomes like this magnet. It's like my, my, my pores open up physically to everything that speaks to the, to the, to the work. So when I do the actual performance, it is where it is sort of like now everything that I have sort of sucked in comes out. All I'm doing is I am facilitating internally how far we go and when it's time for the next step. It's mainly about taking the time to listen. And it is about engagement. Simply ritual engagement, physical engagement, because bodies, still bodies still talk. They vibrate a certain um, way. So you can, the feeling in the room, you understand how you are changing it. So for me, the, the process of research doesn't stop because I'm performing. I am still that whirlwind. I, my pores are still wide open for information. Okay, we should maybe move. As students began rehearsing for an upcoming play in the venue next door to us, we left the arena theatre for the recording studio. So, where are we going? We're going about five minutes away. In the car on the way there, Sopotela spoke about the possibility of being commissioned to perform Untitled in Pretoria and also the role of performance in addressing societal trauma. In fact, a friend of mine, Kelvin Ratladi, um, he wants to produce it. Um, he says it needs a room full of men only and the door to be locked and for them to be in the presence of the performance. What do you think of that? I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared of the men in the country. <laughs> 
in the state of the performance, I'm never scared. But right now, as someone who is not in there, I am terrified to be in a room with, with a lot of men. I think the first, first step is confront each other with the trauma. We need to say it as it is. We need to be hard in describing the details of it. So it's not a general feeling or a general act. You know, when you say rape, people think the so-called private parts, you know, that is the act of rape. But there is a whole entirety of a picture that we need to grapple with. How is it that the person gets to that part of the body? They needed to dismantle. They needed to um, disempower them. They needed to deal with a, a human being who's fighting. And not fighting sometimes. But someone had to separate legs. <sighs> We started quite abruptly. We kind of jumped straight into a performance. Mm -hmm. So let's go back a bit now and you tell me about where you grew up and the kind of household you grew up in. I grew up in Kailicha. I grew up with both my parents, my mother and my father. I've got two other siblings. Um, Kwezi Park is sort of like a suburb in Kailicha. It's where the policemen and the teachers uh, stay. But right next to it is a section where construction workers were, um, um, I think it's construction, but we used to call it the railway. So there was the suburb, which is the Kwezi, where I stay, and then part of that suburb will be the railway, and then right behind my house will be what you call what informal settlements. So that's a setup that I grew up in. There was um, a difference in that when you, your mother is a teacher, which is what my mother used to do, there was a sort of separation to think that we were better well off, which I understood very early in my life that that was not the case because that was not the case at home, definitely. Um, my mother suffered a lot with um, mismanagement of money. Um, my, my father was a, a, a messenger for the Kerk where the Five Star Hotel now stands uh, on Orange Street, that used to be um, in the offices, where my father used to make tea and vacuum and, and uh, take the post to the post office down at Adderley Street. Do you trace your creative practice or your creative beginnings to your early childhood? Very much so. Um, for me, it was a way of escaping um, the situation at home. There was a lot of violence when I grew up at home um, because of this dilemma of having my mother having um, 
um, uh, accumulated money very early in her life and being independent so early and now having to accept that she's not as sort of, I, I never knew that people could have that difficulty, but I guess it does happen where accepting that you now cannot have the things you used to have because you now have children, you know. And um, yeah, I think that was the, the difficulty that my parents had. It was very much financial, which became a bit violent. Doing performance was this way of escaping. So I used to, every Friday, I would go into my room and play music. And uh, I would dance in front of a mirror. But the dancing was not the normal kind of dancing. I would do these things called moving sculptures. So I was very aware from the early age that it was not dance as I would want people would be dancing. But it would be some form of dance, of some form of expression, of movement, of body. So I was always interested in how the body moved, the shapes that the body makes. And I tell most of my stories through gesture and movement. What is the first performance you ever saw that really made an impression on you? In performance art, it was, it was of, of a, a gentleman from Stellenbosch, I think. He took these fluorescent lights and I don't know how, but when he moved his body and lifted his shirt, he revealed writing on his body with this light that he had. And I had not expected what he did. It was magical, but it was heart-hitting. Whatever it is that he was feeling, he was expressing it to its maximum because it was not pretty. And he was not trying to make it to be pretty. In fact, he was ugly, but it was beautiful at the same time. And I understood his pain. He was dealing with something internal. And in the way that he did it, I understood that this was the impulse and he went straight to it. And for me, that is what performance art does. It goes straight to the meat, to the core of the problem, to where you feel the pain the most. But also it's driven by wherever there is pain is because you love the most, I think. In discussing the influences and inspirations of Sopatella's early career, we spoke about a defining experience in 2007, a series of performance workshops she took part in that were held in the lead-up to the Spear Contemporary that year. The Spear Contemporary was a huge exhibition of South African art that took place in Stellenbosch in Cape Town in 2007 and 2010, and a number of performances created in the workshops went on to be featured in the exhibition. The workshops were designed and led by Jay Pather. These workshops, that's when, that was for me the introduction into performance art. In that week, I lost five members of my family. And, and it came with a great opportunity. I know it sounds wrong. But then I had an outlet to take out what I was feeling about these sudden deaths. And it was not an accident. It was not the same. The people died like in one place. But then someone died on Monday, someone died on Tuesday, someone died on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, until the weekend of the performance. At that morning, I knew that I needed black paint. And then I painted my whole body black. This image of the blackened figure became the seed for a performative work called Onyawo Alunampumlo, The Foot Has No Nose, that was a collaboration between Thomas Opatela, theatre maker Moenya Kabwe, 
and visual artist Kemangwa Lehulere that was selected for the 2007 Spear Contemporary. I asked Sopatella and Jay Pather to take me through what audiences saw as they approached the outdoor performance space on the Spear estate where the work took place. You walked into this huge container space, but we were not inside a container, which is very important. The space was demarcated by containers, which will give you some kind of an idea of how big it was. And it was containers that were put on top of each other. On one side, four of them, and on the length of it will be like six or eight of them, and they'll be on top of each other. So in the middle of the space that these containers are creating will be our performance. And I will be outside wrapped with this, wrapped around with this red ribbon. Before you arrive at this large space, you encounter Kuma lying on the floor, uh, wrapped up, you know, to the point of like hurting. This red tape was so tight that, uh, you know, you could see the folds of her skin and, and she was painted black. So you found me sitting on this, um, what do you call it? Ubulongwe, no, uh, compost wrapping myself around the ribbon to go into the space. So as an audience member, you had this feeling that the performance had already started. And almost as if this body, this black body, was part of the compost. In the middle of this container space, you would have Mwenya um, Kabe standing in this long plinth, about four meters, four meters high. Mwenya Kabe wearing a bridal gown dressed up uh, to the, you know, dressed up to the nuns, but also with all of this red tape. And uh, to that red tape, Kuma Sapatella was attached. It was quite a beautiful image of this, because Munya is, is like very dark-skinned woman with the, this white dress, this wedding gown on and uh, a suitcase, a red suitcase. The traveler, I would say. Um, the promise of something new. And then on the, on the right-hand side of Mwenyakabe, about four meters away, you would have Gimangwa Lehulere walking on a, on a slightly lower plinth, about a meter from the floor. Kimang was with a camera focused on his feet and he was slowly walking on white powder and white clay. Kimang's feet painted white. People thought about the journey of initiation, but then he took the, the, the feet and the projection of the feet were in reverse. So this notion of are we moving forward or backwards? Should we move back to look for what? And this projection formed the backdrop to Mwenya in her full regalia, uh, you know, in, in this web of red tape, holding onto the lead line that was wrapped around Kuma. It was a lot of red tape. <laughs> and, and then she began to pull, you know, she was began to pull. And, and almost as if this red ribbon had been picking me up from the compost. Now I'm being dragged into the container, into a space where the, the reflection of my body being black and painted black would create a hole in the space. And these ribbons, we had connected them on white boards going like uh, almost like laser lights. And I will tangle myself in the red ribbon throughout the whole entire space until I get to the feet of Monyakabe's plinth. 
For me, by that time, the spirit has taken over. It's like a, it's a, it's like a, the presence. It's for me, when I begin the performance, I am summoning presence of the dead. And by the time I get to her feet, they have arrived. At the end, there was this understanding that we were all going somewhere. That something had taken us onto a journey. We are receiving these, 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 this information or these things are happening to us in our process of moving. And most of them are painful. For me, I wanted to create a, an, an emptiness in space. Painting my body black, wherever you see me, you would see these holes. Something is missing in the world. The red ribbon filling the space, it's about these boundaries. How one has to, in the, in the movement of the piece inside, I move through the red ribbon to make way. The body changes position, it adapts, which is what we do to move forward. I needed to look in, I needed to, to fill the void inside because of the deaths. And it almost as if at the end, it came out through my eyes. Because I remember that my eyes and my mouth were almost gaping out by the end. Because it was like trying to breathe anew, to find breath, to revive. The sounds you're hearing now are taken from a work that Sopatela made five years after Unyao Aluna Pumlo. She is moving around a stage, dressed in a bright red skirt that stretches from her stomach down to the floor. It's so long that it creates a pool of fabric at her feet, causing her to shuffle rather than step easily. She's naked from the waist up. She holds a sack in her left hand and, with her right, reaches into it, grabs a handful of cow dung and throws it to the floor. Moments later, she throws two handfuls against the back wall of the performance space, on which the word Nkandla is written, also with cow dung, in big capital letters. The performance is called Nkukuyubeke Ipanda. The chicken has laid its eggs. And it was conceptualized towards the end of then-President Jacob Zuma's first term in office, when it was revealed that Zuma's private residence, just outside the town of Nkandla in KwaZulu-Natal, had been extravagantly renovated using public money. Diaketo Mohoto Wataluki, who you heard at the top of the episode, dedicates her chapter in the book Acts of Transgression just to analyzing Nkukuyubek Ipanda. And yet, as she observes, both in her writing and in our phone conversation, the work seems to resist attempts to articulate it. It's like, okay, it's like trying to capture smoke. You, you see it, you could probably smell it. Sometimes you can feel it on your skin, but you can't grasp it. And it is the grasping that is required by analysis if you want to write an academic paper. 
that grasping is is um it's just impossible to do with Tuma's work. She just does not get held in that way. The work has become a seminal piece of South African live art. And I'd been wanting to ask Sopotel about it for a long time, starting with how the idea for the performance first came about. I had been making it for a long time before I actually made it. I, I saw this red, I saw red, I saw red fabric. I had a red car at that time, a city golf. The first phase of making the work, the first draft would have been me in a red skirt, topless, uh, with this red sort of fabric, stretchy fabric that will stretch onto my red golf. So this, it will be sort of like this cube that went from my head onto the, the, the car. And I would be sort of uh, dragged with this red car and inside would be a group of men who would be drinking and um, playing loud music and watching porn and masturbating. I saw it as some kind of a procession. It was like a procession of how a woman would be seen um, in, in the world. Um, I felt very exposed at the time. I, I, I felt that no one was taking care of the girl child. I felt that young people, young girls were, were, were left alone to deal with, with reproductive issues by themselves. I found it very disturbing that young girls were the ones who had to go to the clinic every three months to get themselves injected uh, so that they don't get pregnant. And if they do get pregnant, they're left alone with the kids. Or young girls didn't have sanitary pads. I felt like young girls were, were dealing with so much blood. And I, I felt it was not understood that it's traumatic to deal with blood. Um, uh, yes, we are made to understand that it's your periods, but it's blood nonetheless. And so, and so this work came from that impulse. In the opening scene of the work, there is a cowpat in the centre of the stage that holds a single candle. Sopatela walks into the performance space, wearing the kind of overall we might associate with a domestic worker. The domestic worker is the one who cleans but it's the one who knows all your business. So she is very powerful. She takes care of her life and of your household. She runs households. Domestic workers, because of their silence, their movements and their actions are very loud and they stick to us. And it's a common memory that we have. Many of us, many South Africans, she kneels down in front of the carpet, lights the candle and takes off the overall. Now naked and with her back to the audience, she spreads dung from the carpet onto her back and then opens her legs wide. In her right hand, she's holding the South African flag. Tell me about introducing the flag and then deciding what it was that you were to do with it. 
I had been trying to ignore that for a long time because for me, using a flag was very taboo. It was very obvious, you know, it's like a flag. Come on. We know you're talking about the country already. We know this. But I felt I had to. It had gotten to a point where the, the country was so rotten that it needed to be shown to be specific. And deciding to have it inside inside my vagina, it was, you know, there was a story of a lady who had to eat cow dung. She had no food and she was taking ARVs. She had to eat cow dung so that she could take her ARVs so that she doesn't take them on an empty stomach. So there was this thing of this country is so full of shit that some people have to eat shit to survive. So that country needed to be there. I don't think at that time anyone was in love with the South African flag, in fact. It's like this thing that we, it's, it's rotten inside of us. And when I took out the, the, the flag from inside me, not only was it rotten, but we had been fucked as the people of this country. By the powers that be, that are running this country. But I was now taking control because I was taking this thing outside of my body and reusing it as something else. So it's about also people taking charge to know that these colors of this flag beside me mean nothing. All it is is a piece of cloth with lots of colors on it that represent our whole people. But he is the people. I am the person. I am the people. We need to understand the power that we have as people. We give power. We give power. We put that president, even after he raped someone, we, we are the ones who voted him into power. Sopotela then takes the audience through a series of slow meditative movements, or what could be seen as different roles, different persona. From the figure of the domestic worker to the woman who holds the flag of the country inside of her, she sits down in a galvanized tub and washes her back. She walks over to a small table and stands on top of it, in the long skirt with the stretchy red fabric. Her figure casts a statuesque shadow onto the back wall. Sitting on the table, she puts on a pair of extremely high black stilettos and stands up precariously, tentatively, Gospel singer Rebecca Malopez, Ia Hamblinkola, this chariot is moving, begins to play. With the stilettos, those are from Switzerland, from a sex shop. There is an assumption that sex is, comes <laughs> naturally with everyone to a black female body. So the shoes for me are like this persona that I cannot let go of because of your gaze. Immediately when I've put the shoes on, that's the gaze that you give. So it's your gaze, it's not mine. So I'm, I'm, I'm battling with things that are not even my own. Mohoto Wataluki writes in her chapter, it is not often that I have watched a work that shows specific and uncurated black womanhood presented in all its complexities and contradictions. 
in ways that ring true for me as a black woman spectator. She's presenting us with this really, really just um, layered um, kind of, she's showing us the folds between the layers, right? It's like an alchemy. She is, she, it's magical. She brings us the, this working in the street girl who is selling her body and working. The lady who comes to my house every day to wash my clothes. Um, the, you know, the tea lady at the doctor's office and kind of, she doesn't collapse them into each other. They're not the same person, but they are um, varied in all their contradictions. And yet they are all there in her body. <laughs> that is magical to view and to be able to discern. The final image of the performance is Sopatela facing the back of the stage, hands behind her back, dressed in the overall once more, and standing beneath the word in Kandla, inscribed on the white wall with Kaudang. I just remember people coming out of there either extremely angry, like, because, you know, this was on the second floor and people would heading for the stairs and trying to get outside for some air and, you know, after the performance. And so there was, you know, there was that sense of, um, of challenge and rage. Uh, but this kaodong that was sitting there, it's a, it's a metaphor for our history of constant suppressing, constant shoving down and keeping down. And, and I remember... Uh, several people that were just talking about how the sensoriness will not never leave them you know that encounter of history abjection and violence through in such a gentle meditated way but so strong sensorially will stick with them My reaction was visceral and physical and emotional. In an ideal world, I, I, I would probably make a work in response to her work. Do you know what I mean? And have the, the conversation be in the same modality. But my willingness to kind of accept that I can't grasp this and do my best to approach grasping, it's that thing that I call ineffable. That is my experience of the ineffability of the work. What Mahoto Wataluki brings to an analysis of Tomoso Patela's work is that analysis itself ultimately falls short, and yet that there is something generative in this failure of language and our desire to make sense of. Rereading Mahoto Wataluki, reminded me of something that I heard Sopatela say in a panel discussion a few years ago. This is a quote from that evening. You say, I create a space of unknowing inside of myself. I empty myself because I really don't know what the conclusion is. So I have to create the space of discomfort to perform honestly. And that really intrigued me, this idea of not knowing as a kind of prerequisite almost for an honest performance. <laughs> yes, that's actually my research uh, that I'm doing. Um, 
I decided that I wanted to, to explore this space of creation that is unknown. And, and I'm trying to take it back to where it could originate from. In, in many rituals in, in the African context, there is a sense that the ritual leader knows the steps to take in order to take people through the ritual itself. But they do not know what the end is. All they know is they need they need imbola, they need to wear white clothes, they need to be in a hut. The hut needs to have a cow dung smeared on the floor. You see, he knows how to create the space. So for me, it sort of works in that kind of realm. I collect these things, but I do not know what is going to happen when I do the performance. It's not just the person, but it's connection with something higher than what we are. I believe that the fact that the impulse came through me to communicate is already a sign that something else is in, is in function, is, is at work, that is beyond even me. Um, this is also the notion that I take to when I perform, when I tell you that it, when the audience, what the audience sees, how they respond and what they think, it's like a cycle then. Umoya. Um, in English you say umoya is wind, but I don't mean that. Umoya is spirit. So umoya. It's so strange for me because it's, it's, when I say spirit, then it becomes very complex. But it's simple. Thank you so much for everything. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. The ICA podcast is a production of the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. It is edited and produced by me, Catherine Bull. Music in this episode includes Smooth Stone and Snowdrift by Blue Dot Sessions, and original compositions by Jürgen Browninger and Elvis Sebeko. Join us next time when we'll be speaking to curator Kanyisile Mbongwa. See you then, and thanks, as always for listening.